please welcome Leo Brody. Thank you. thank you, David, and thank you all for coming. I'm really pleased to be here. Um, I know it's been a week where uh, perhaps a lot of real fears uh, have pushed out the, the fictional fears that we're also familiar with. Ah, Jeff and Kathleen uh, arriving just at the right time. <laughs> okay. Let's see if I can. How's that? Okay, much better. If I can see the book around the mic. Anyhow, so back to fictional fears and real fears there. I mean, we're, we've grown up ever since we were kids on stories of ogres and ghosts and monsters of one sort and another. Uh, and we might wonder what is the relationship between those kinds of stories that we're also familiar with uh, and the real fears that we face in the outside world. And that's one of the things that I wanted to address that I do address in the course of the book too. That is how we take those so many of those images from the past and project them uh, onto the realities of that we face there. And I think you can see a lot of evidence of that uh, in the, in the um, presidential campaign uh, that we've all been through. Uh, you know, the way in which, um, oh, I don't know, Trump as Frankenstein, Hillary as witch, uh, Cruz as Satan. I mean, it's all this kind of repository of imagery that goes way back uh, and that's uh, and that we instinctually and emotionally feel is relevant there that really tugs uh, at our feelings there really what the what the premise of the book uh, is about is that fear is an emotion that we all have uh, in a variety of ways. But what shapes fear? What turns fear into shapes that we can recognize rather than just being a kind of free-floating anxiety about things? And what I try to do in the book is to try to look at the history of fear. I and mean, this is one of the things that uh, has fascinated me in my other books uh, as well, just the history of emotion. You know, we feel that we have emotions, uh, and we know we have emotions, and that they're immediate we have emotions of love, we have emotions of aspiration, we have emotions of fear there, and we don't think that they have a history. Uh, but my interest is, is really in their history, in the history of the ways that those emotions are shaped. So the, uh, one of the books that David mentioned, The Frenzy of Renown, is about the history of fame and the idea of aspiration uh, over, this, over the millennia, over the centuries, and how it changes depending on what kind of culture it appears in. Uh, and the, from Chivalry to Terrorism book is about the relationship be between war and ideas of masculinity and how they change too. Again, what does it mean to be a man? What is, what is the feeling of masculinity uh, and how it's re reflected, let's say, in ideas about nationalism, ideas about citizenship, ideas about war uh, as well there. So this book is about fear, as I've said, uh, and I should mention we're still in the kind of penumbra of a couple interesting anniversaries that happened last week. Uh, on Halloween, uh, you may know, um, was the 399th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, uh, of the moment when uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg there. Uh, and also, on that's the October 31st, Halloween, 
On November 1st, All Saints Day, is the 261st anniversary of the Lisbon earthquake, uh, which took place in 1755. And those two dates in history are significant for me and significant for the, for the book for a couple of reasons. One, the, the Reformation, the splitting of um, Christianity, of European Christianity, into Protestantism on the one hand and Catholicism uh, on the other, the breaking down of the universal Catholic Church into, the, into Protestantism there, created a situation in which uh, the idea of who really had an access to the invisible world, who could, who could stop demons, who could summon up angels, could Protestants do it better than Catholics? Could Catholics do it better than Protestants? I mean, that was a real issue there. It was a theological issue, and it was an issue on the level, you know, of, of the Sunday sermon uh, in these various places. The fire and brimstone sermons, let's say, that the, uh, that the Protestant, so many Protestant ministers uh, specialized in. Now, uh, to me, this is a reason why the 17th century, in particular, is the century uh, of the great... Uh, witch hunts there. This is in the wake of the 16th century and the Protestant Reformation there uh, and the, this kind of combat that I'm talking about. So the idea of, of who who is a witch, who can better determine who a witch is, uh, this is, of course there are witches before this, there are witches in the Middle Ages, but the idea that the witch is always a malevolent um, follower of Satan in a kind of worldwide conspiracy against Christianity is really much more, it comes in the wake of the Reformation, it's much more a 17th century idea, and of course, I'm sure you're all familiar with the Salem witch trials, let's say in 1692, which is like, you know, the pure American version of this. Now what about the Lisbon earthquake? The Lisbon earthquake uh, 1755, as I mentioned, is of course a physical event. It happens on November 1st, All Saints Day. It happens in Lisbon, in Portugal, which is considered all through Europe uh, to be the most pious country in Europe there. And of course it occurs early in the morning when people are at church and all those churches fall in on them and kill them. Uh, something between 10,000 and 100,000 people are killed in the earthquake and the tsunami that follows this earthquake. Um, so the churches all were destroyed. The red light district, however, was spared. <laughs> what are we, you know, what were, not we, but what were the people at the time supposed to make, supposed to make uh, of this event? What was God saying? I mean, was, we're still in a culture at this, at this point there where people are wondering, and especially in a pious country, what is God's message? What are the messages of, of external events, uh, the messages of physical events like that, material events? So some people said, the Jesuits, who were the, the main religious power in Portugal, said, we're not pious enough. We're not believing enough. We're too backsliding. Other people said, no, no, that's not the reason. Uh, the reason is because that we're trading too much with the English and they're infidels. Uh, and there's a whole host. There's you know, seven, eight major different interpretations. So this whole question of interpretation, what is the relationship to event between events in the physical world, the world that we experience directly, and events in the invisible world, the supernatural world, is a crucial issue. Now, we're far enough along in 1755 that actually there's an embryonic seismology uh, happening as well. So, and people are saying, oh, well, it's all natural forces. And this is, you know, why 
part of the title of the book is about it's on ghosts, witches, vampires, zombies, and other monsters of the natural and supernatural world. We certainly have a lot of natural monsters uh, around. Uh, I got an email the other day from someone who had read the book and who was a great buff of the Loch Ness monster and wanted my opinion about what I thought of the Loch Ness monster. I mean, there's Sasquatch. You know, there are all sorts of natural monsters there. Now, part of the structure of the book uh, is that a major part of the structure of the book is that I try to distinguish four monsters that to me are the basic kinds of monsters uh, that the other monsters all grow from. They're frequently amalgamated as they develop over the years. But all four of them in different ways are are about fears that arise in the 18th century around this time, uh, fears of the modern, fears of change, fears of technology, fears of the future, in a a whole variety of ways. And the four monsters are this. The first is the monster from nature. I mean, this is very clearly a kind of Loch Ness, uh, King Kong, Godzilla, that kind of monster that comes up there that proves, in fact, that we don't have control over nature. Remember, the 18th century is also called the Enlightenment. This is a time when people are doing scientific experiments. Well, they started in the 17th, but it really gathers force in the 18th century. They're trying to say, understand the physical world and also in a kind of somewhat imperial, uh, perhaps uh, bragging way, say that finally human beings will have control over that material world uh, and be able to turn it to its own to their own uses in some way. But the monster from nature, in a way, says, no, you can't. There is always going to be something in nature that will, in fact, tell you you're wrong. Uh, and in our own time, the closest kind of monsters from nature that we're familiar with, aside from these kind of uh, you know folktale monsters like like the Sasquatch, uh, are the um, monsters that are created by atomic power. We have unlocked, we have tried to unlock the secrets of nature, and nature is going to take her revenge on us. Godzilla, the creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, figures like that. So that's the monster from nature. The next monster is the monster that is created on purpose. This is really the scientific and the technological monster, and of course the, you know, the prime um, avatar Uh, of this is Frankenstein, the Frankenstein monster. And the Frankenstein monster, again, is a kind of parable of the way in which we think we can control things, we think we can create things that will do our bidding, uh, and in fact, what happens, they turn against us. Of course, in Mary Shelley's book, it's it's about children as well, that children will turn, we think we can make these children and they will be always subordinate to us and of course they turn against us as well and the, you know and we're all very familiar with their descendants again in robots and androids and the cyborgs uh, of the present the third kind of monster the archetype is Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde and that's the monster from within instead of the monster coming from some exotic strange place instead of the monster you know being different from us being other being over there somewhere the monster is actually inside of us just waiting to be tapped and also that kind of monster is a is a more primitive monster too in the sense natural perhaps as well, the way uh, Mr. Hyde is described in the book and often appears in the movies uh, as a kind of uh, Neanderthal almost, a kind of aboriginal monster in that way. That is, you know, the, the younger self of the human race that has been repressed and left behind. Now again, 
taking his revenge as well. And the final monster in this in this uh, this four this group of four uh, is the um, is the monster from the past. Again, the idea that we're moving towards the future, we are doing everything, we are, we are great, we are imperial, we have knowledge that our forefathers did not have. And this monster from the past comes to give the lie to that. And I associate that monster really with Dracula. That Dracula represents an older world, um, even though uh, Vlad, the Impaler, who's, who uh, you know, has been claimed to be the original that Bram Stoker based Dracula on, was in fact a Christian who was defending his country uh, against the Ottoman Empire. The way Dracula is presented to us, in fact, uh, is that Dracula is an anti-Christian figure the Antichrist in some ways. In the movie, which you may have seen, Dracula 2000, he's a direct descendant of Judas Iscariot, uh, in fact. Uh, and, the, you know, the vampire, the vampire uh, of all the monsters, the vampire has the most paraphernalia. It's the most like a church. You know, it has acolytes, it has, you know, blood and crucifixes and garlic, and you can't go out in the daytime. I mean, there are more things associated with the vampire than with any of those monsters. So, those are the four. I wanted. I'd like to actually hear all your questions. Uh, I wanted just to read one passage about something a little bit different, but connected to this. Uh, and this is first about. It's about the ghost. People were very confused about ghosts in the Middle Ages. There was a great deal of belief, but in fact there was a great deal of disbelief as well, especially when ghosts appeared in dreams. Part of the problem was the often contradictory ways the ghost was described, either in theological terms or popular narratives or visual arts. The contrast between just saying there is a spiritual world and then trying to imagine it to make it concrete. As Dante in the Inferno vividly depicted the torments, fires, and personnel of hell. Thus, ghosts from the 12th to the 15th century were variously described as resembling Lazarus, looking the same as they were when they were alive, in the form of a naked child, as a phantom in a shroud or a white sheet, or as a decomposing cadaver or skeleton, or as invisible. Of course, now we've mainly, it's all the white sheet stuff that we've devolved on, but these are all these different ways. How is the, if the ghost, is the ghost appearing the same way the ghost appeared in life? Is the ghost looking different? Is the ghost looking like a skeleton or what? Leaving aside the apparitions of the dead who appear because they're summoned by a medium or necromancer who professes a special connection to the world of the dead, uh, what I might call the voluntary or freelance ghost often has a very specific agenda, whatever the religious context in which he or she materializes. Now, ghostly gender is another issue that requires speculation, for without a physical body, why have gender or race for that matter or any other fleshly distinction? In a Christian or Shinto or Islamic context, such ghosts often appear for purposes of revenge or to complete unfinished business. Perhaps they've been murdered. Perhaps they desire to settle scores with the sinful, either for their own purposes or because they were sent from heaven to redress wrongs. Blood will tell, says the old adage, even if only the killer hears the beats of the telltale heart. 
But such locally vengeful ghosts also serve in a religious context a wider function. And many older ghost stories seem bent on elucidating specific points of religious doctrine, especially about the nature of sin. Ghosts represent an admonition, a warning that proper ritual has not been fulfilled. It isn't so much the murder itself as the lack of a proper sermon and a gravesite to honor the dead. In this way, the ghost serves as a defender of religious orthodoxy, seeking revenge on the living because the proper forms have been ignored. For these reasons, ghosts are often the denizens of a particular place, and now, of course, whole television reality shows are based on recording electromagnetic fields, spots of heat and cold, or ultrasonic sound among the archipelago of haunted spots. Invariably, there is some tale of tragedy or crime that explains why this particular place is haunted, although never why another place is not haunted. And then one final passage, just about this whole question uh, of the, the relationship of religions, uh, the new religions to the religions of the past, and particularly the relationship uh, of Christianity to paganism. To the extent that popular culture is, as it is so often called, escapism, we can reasonably ask what we're supposed to be escaping from. The answer might lie in its ability to simultaneously arouse fears, allay them, but never quite extinguish them. (laughs) Perpetual battles characterize the modern world. The questioning of the ability of traditional authority to meet new challenges versus the embrace of traditional authority as the only guide to the present and the future. The unseating of the old powers versus the desire to take on the mantle of their legitimacy. The belief in individual will versus the belief in God's foreknowledge. One solution derived from both nature and the past was a periodic re-anointing in the primitive. And in England, this in the 19th century, this took the form of a Celtic revival and a revival uh, of Celtic religion particularly. Perhaps more than any other European version, Celtic Christianity seems to be able to weave together old practices and folklore with the new religion, simultaneously uh, hospitable to beliefs in elves and leprechauns as well as in the calendar of saints. Uh, And this is particularly true uh, in in Ireland. Now paganism and Christianity had already merged in the image of Christ as the good shepherd as well as the youthful athlete and warrior. It was an accommodation uh, as well, excuse me, it was accommodation that could merge the ideals of the priesthood with those of a court-controlled military society. If any group in the British Isles might be called Gothic in the 18th century sense, it was the Irish, and perhaps the Highland Scots, both groups in which the Celtic inheritance was strong. The Irish had been a thorn in the British side for a long time, and often British Protestantism identified their Catholicism with a kind of paganism. Uh, Yet Ireland was not the only part of Britain that preserved something of the pre-Christian past. The English language itself retains a good deal, even though we don't often realize it. 
God, for example, is the Old English and the Old Norse word rather than the Greek theos or the Latin deus. Heaven comes from the Old English word for edge or sharp stone, perhaps related to the idea that if lightning comes from the sky, it was like the spark from a a struck stone. Easter comes from Yoster, the Anglo-Saxon goddess of the dawn and the spring, whereas in French, Pac, and Italian, Pasqua, it derives from the Hebrew Pesach, Passover. And of course, there are the days of the week, Sunday, Moon Day, Tuesday, Woden's Day, Thor's Day, Freya's Day, and Saturn's Day, the only one with a Latin origin. So our own English language is totally transfused with this sign of paganism. And even uh, hell, uh, hell is the um, Celtic goddess uh, of the underworld. So there's a whole kind of background here. I mean, there's so many things in English that uh, kind of push English, you know, English speakers towards kinds of ideas. I mean, say there is no parallel in other languages of the relationship between devil and evil say, uh, that we have in English. So this, you know, in a brief way, this is a, some of the kind of things that I talk about in the book, and I'd be happy to have your questions. Yes? Actually, just a comment. Mm-hmm. Gehenna was uh, Gehenna, yeah. Meant the outside of city walls, there would be uh, trash that was burned. Uh, since they didn't bury it, they burned it. So that was known as Gehenna, which then became uh, synonymous with hell. With it. And what about Sheol? What about Sheol? Isn't that another word for the, the Hebrew underworld? S H S H. E-O-L, I think. Yeah, I'm not, yeah. Do you know? No, no. I have have a linguistic problem. Okay. No, because I I liked a lot of these. Half the books, I don't know how it comes out. Mm. um, Who wins? A lot of the linguistic, the ways in which the the language reprises these these themes that sort of pop up in the the oddest ways. So I like... You have a, a very nice disquisition on grotto mm-hmm. and the grotesque, and, and then it, it sort of winds up with Freddy's, uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. With Nightmare on Elm Street, with Freddy's Basement and Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, you know, that is, you know, these, these motifs, they modify, they change over the time. And uh, what Jeff was referring to, you know, where does the word grotesque come from? Uh, well, the people were digging uh, on the hill in Rome, uh, and they fell through, they were trying to build a well. This is like in the Renaissance. Uh, and they fell through and they discovered they were this hill was actually had been covered over the centuries by dirt and trees and things like that. And it was actually Nero's golden house, this enormous palace that Nero had built. And they saw on the... Um, on the walls there, these paintings of, of kind of, uh, you know, of flowers and trees and things and and also faces you know and limbs and things like that conglomerate kinds of monsters and they called them grotesque grotesca uh, because they were found in a grotto uh, essentially in this in this kind of cave there 
So, you know, the, I mean, it's, it, in a way, you know, this whole this thing about the individual words, at least linguistically, the way in which it sort of it doesn't predetermine us, but it sort of sends us in a certain direction. Our own language sends us in a certain direction is very similar, I think, to, you know, the ideas of these images uh, as well, you know, these primitive images. I mean, people might have said, you know, of course, cavemen were, free, you know, they sat there and they thought of heard all those noises in the dark outside their cave there, but then why why did they create certain kinds of images, and why do we create them uh, as well? To kind of, uh, you know, as I started out talking about the election that way, you know, why do we devolve onto certain kinds of our images for what we don't like, our images for what we're afraid of, come from this very deep history uh, of of monstrousness? Um, is yeah. Well, you know, it's you know, it, I've never seen, actually we were talking about this the other day. I think I can't remember whether it's in it's in Kierkegaard in Sickness unto Death, maybe or Fear and Trembling, one of those, uh, one of his books. Uh, he talks about Abraham and Isaac, you know. So God says to Abraham, take your son up and sacrifice him on the mountain. And he goes up on the mountain. He says, yes, God, of course I'm going to do that. I got the knife and everything and I got the kid. Um, and they go up on the mountain and God says, okay, I just was testing you. You know, see whether, you know, you would obey me or not. And there's actually a, a, a lamb in that bush there that's trapped and you can grab it and sacrifice that instead. And then Kierkegaard said when Abraham and Isaac come down from the mountain, they had seen the trees and the rocks and everything before and now they looked entirely different. So it's like the God experience, you know, are touching that uh, borderline, that borderland between the visible and the invisible, the natural and the supernatural. Uh, that you know that causes that. Of course, that's the that's the positive version of it. Yeah. Uh, then there's also the negative version. You know, and you just don't understand like wh- what what investment you have one has, uh, you know, in a certain view of reality until that view of reality is contradicted. And often you feel, you know, wait a minute. I mean, can I ex- re-examine my own assumptions somehow, or am I going to stick to? that previous view of reality. Yeah. So then the zombies, um, <coughs> can you talk about zombies? Oh, yeah, sure. Because we seem to move from vampires to zombies, so there's always a fashion, right? The culture. And zombies, no, thank you. Uh, great, great question. And because zombies are so pervasive now. Now, you know, and zombies have a history, too. I mean, zombies sort of start out in the, in the 1930s, um, uh, the United States is occupying Haiti. Uh, had military presence in Haiti. And there becomes a kind of familiarity with, with Caribbean uh, culture, Caribbean religion, and things like that uh, at that point. Uh, there's a voodoo Macbeth that Orson Welles puts on, for example, uh, in the 1930s there. Um, so, uh, of co- and of course, there's um, uh, Eugene O'Neill's Emperor Jones, which is not quite about zombies, but still it's about interest uh, in Haiti. Now, of course, the, you know, the, um, the, the uh, zombie figures uh, in the Caribbean are, are, are black, you know, African-American. Uh, 
so this stays that way when Hollywood takes it over. The first, actually, the first zombie movie I think is called The White Zombie. Oddly enough, uh, you know, another white co-optation of black culture. Uh, it started with Bela Lugosi, who was going to turn a, a. How does it go? I think he's tur- is he turning a young man into a zombie because this woman is in love with her and she he's rejected her. So this, as a zombie, <laughs> he'll be able he'll be he'll like her better. I don't know. Anyhow, so this you know this kind of keeps the zombie going there um, into the 1940s and 1950s. A lot of a lot of zombie movies there. There's even a drink called the zombie, a rum drink called the zombie at this point. Uh, and um, 1960. I mean, this is George Romero. I mean, if one person changed the image of the zombie, it's George Romero in Night of the Living Dead. Uh, and George Romero was making movies in Pittsburgh. You know, it's like really outside the Hollywood system. Uh, and p- part of what George Romero did was to turn zombies into ordinary people. You know, ordinary people who were just going to come and wanted to chew you up in kind of an ogre way. The eat the brain stuff is much, comes much later, eat, eating the brain specifically. I think there's a little Alzheimer thing uh, in that too, worried about getting our brains eaten there. But one, one of the main differences... One of the main differences between the four classic monsters that I mentioned and the zombie is that the classic monsters are all individuals. Zombies are a group. So it's about the fear of groups and whatever group you'd like. I mean, is it about the fear of illegal immigrants? Is it about the fear of Islamic fundamentalists? Is it about the fear of Republicans or Democrats or whoever? Or more. Well, this is what, you know, This it starts out that after Night of the Living Dead, 10 years later, Romero makes Dawn of the Dead, uh, and they're all consumers. It's a, you know, it's about a consumer, it's a blind consumer society. And they, and they go to, they go to the mall, you know, and they fall into the fountains of the mall, and they try to get into the stores to buy things. Uh, and, and actually somebody in the movie, as I remember, explains it. Well, because they've been resurrected, you know, it's always a kind of disease. I mean, because there's also fear of globalization, too. It's a fear of epidemic diseases. It's a fear of these kind of abstractions and these, and these groups there. Uh, but they've had, in Dawn of the Dead, they've, some disease, they've died but because of the, from the disease, but the disease also makes them undead. Uh, unfortunately, however, they only have an IQ of 25. Uh, <laughs> so they want to go to places where they felt happy. Uh, and that was buying things at the mall was where they was where they felt happy. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's right. See, it's all become true. The one thing, the interesting thing that's happened with zombies fairly recently is they've gotten a lot faster than they used to be. <laughs> I mean, in, in World War Z, they're zooming, all, which make you know, which makes them even more compatible with a with a kind of you know fear of fear of refugees, fear of fundamentalists, fear. And high tech fears, yeah, oh, sure, and fears, fears of you know, fears of NAFTA. I don't know. <laughs> that was sort of Fridays after, didn't that? That those fast. Uh, fast yeah, the fast, the fast moving ones. Yeah. <laughs> yes, oh, Diane. Um, do you ex- do you explore? People like to people like to be scared. Oh, this is like they like to go to some people. I do not. I'm not one of them. Right. <laughs> and so. Going to movies, entertainment, telling ghost stories around the campfire is something lots of people like to do. And did you, you, through history, did people like to do that for different reasons? 
or is there a basic reason, like to conquer fear, that everybody always wants to do it? Well, there are different views. I mean, you know, a lot of it is about risk in that way and the willingness to, you know, put yourself in jeopardy uh, and, and then get out of it. But here's, here's a line. Actually, it's the, one of the epigraphs to, to the first chapter. Uh, we love to be at once miserable and unhurt. 1759. <laughs> so, you know, even then, you know, people were talking, and, and there are lots of people saying similar things, you know, over the ages that way. I mean, it's the desire to be, uh, you know, what, on the griddle in some way uh, for a while, but not be burnt. I mean, we can see, you know, and it's like kinds of risk that we we take in, you know, more tangible ways, I don't know, uh, in, in normal life. Tangible is different from the psychic, yeah, from the psychic, from the psychic idea that you somehow, um, you know, uh, there's a scene, I don't know, it reminds me, in Mal Flanders, you know, Defoe's novel, uh, Mal Flanders, there's a scene in which she has robbed a, she's stolen a, a very valuable watch from a little girl. Uh, and she toys with the idea of helping them look for the person who stole the watch. You know, that is how close can you get to the edge without falling in there, you know, and, and she gets this tremendous sense of elation, you know, from, you know, from, from doing that, from taking that well, risk. Murderers do that. Yeah. yeah. They always report that. I had somebody do that to me. Really? Really? really. Yeah, I had a tenant who stole from me, who, who was very, trying to be very helpful in helping me. <laughs> 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 my, my favorite story like that is a friend of mine in, in New York who lived on 105th and Broadway and he came out one day to uh, start his car you know to go somewhere and it goes click 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 and what's the matter lifts up the hood no battery he's looking down guy comes up and says oh I think you lost you lost your battery I think I have one that fits that <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, this, yeah, Clifford. Um, so going back uh, a little um, earlier to the sort of aspects of language and particularly uh, English and various kinds of coinages of certain things that are with us now, um, I just wonder, are there, are there contemporary examples of like contemporary, I mean, you know, the language is rapidly changing, as it always was, but that, that seems a sense that there's all these new words that are coming out of nowhere because of you know, various memes on the internet and what have you. Are some of them uh, in, in the sort of horror area that, that, uh, that, that, that are growing? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, you know, and I would sort of say that, you know, the premise of the book is that they're not, in a sense, that because they're so deep-rooted here they're deep rooted in folk tales. They're deep rooted in ancient superstitions and fairy tales and things like that. That it's much more likely that inst instead of coining a new word for something, that you'll just draw you do some variation on an old word that way. I mean, in the same way that you know that the you know the zombies are kind of variation on on the past or uh, or you know the I mean you know they're enormous. Part of what's, you know, and actually the last chapter is about this. Uh, there's been, you know, there's a tremendous effloration of, of changes in all of these forms because of the movies. 
And starting out with the movie, there's so many different... That is, they're established in literature, they're established in, in writing there, uh, and there's certainly plenty of them, uh, you know, from the 18th century through the 19th century. But when the movies come in, wham, you know, quantum leap forward. There are so many different variations on this. Early Frankenstein movies, early vampire movies, things like that, because the illusionism of the movies really speaks to this whole relationship between the visible and the invisible world. Can you really see it? Is it really there or not? What is actually happening? I mean, is it a fiction or is not? I mean, the whole, I, you, know, the, um, you know, that line from The Sixth Sense, I see dead people there. Well, we see dead people in the movies all the time. You know, that is the movies, <laughs> to see a lot of dead people. I mean, not the ones that we see, contemporary ones, but certainly if you watch Turner Classic movies, you're watching a lot of dead people there. And so this, this line between the living and the dead, you know, gets really, you know, mushed over by the movies. And the line between the visible and the invisible. Is that me or no? Uh, there is an early... You know, uh, this, the genesis of this book, to a great extent, was in a course that I taught uh, at, uh, at USC called The Monster and the Detective, in which I went back and forth between monsters and detectives uh, in that way. Uh, and, there's a, and there's actually a chapter in, uh, on the detective uh, in there, uh, which comes after the Frankenstein chapter. Because I see the detective as a kind of effort of rationality to come back against the irrational. And, and say, oh no, th- it's just a crime. It's ju- it can be solved by physical evidence. It's okay. The, the Gothic, you know, the beginnings of horror fiction is really in the 18th century. The detective starts coming in in the, in the 19th century, uh, in the 1830s and 1840s. Of course, Poe is wonderful because he does both of them. You know, he's like the linchpin uh, between them. But you're also getting a lot of people, even, and Poe himself talks about it in some of his stories, who are interested in detection. There, uh, you know the um, the ways in which uh, the beginnings of Scotland Yard, the beginnings of investigative detection is going on, and the whole idea of detection is to say no, there is no uh, there is no invisible reason, there is no supernatural reason for this. There is a natural reason, and I will find it. Uh, you know Sherlock Holmes, all the, these characters are are like that. I was listening to the poem. Oh, yeah, uh, Damien, I think you were next. Um, <clears throat> During the Inquisition era, uh, minority communities in Europe, they were living in constant fear of uh, dying, you know, at the hands of the Inquisitors and their agents and mobs. Mm-hmm. Um, how would those, I guess those non-Christian people at the time, of, like what category of monster would they have put those Inquisitors into? Well, uh, and, and also, like... Uh, minority communities of today. Like, could you apply that same fear to the way that they view those Trump supporters that have guns and badges? Well, I think any of those, any of the, the people that you fear, you know, you use a kind of ser- a group of images, mm-hmm. you know, to, to try to understand them. You know, and, and to the extent that, I mean, certainly the Inquisitors are a real fear, but there are also kinds of other kinds of, uh, you know, perhaps more paranoid fears in other areas too. And the thing about paranoia is that paranoia is very similar to art, you know. Paranoia makes sense of things. You know, art has a beginning, middle, and end. Paranoia paranoia is, in a certain sense, very consoling. It says, yes, there is a plan. There is a behind the world, you know, and I know what it is. 
Uh, and so, and I'm afraid of it, but I know it exists. So at least there is coherence. It's a search for a kind of coherence, which may not be there. Um, but in, you know, in terms of the, Inquis- the, the, the British Gothic, very fascinated by the Inquisition. In fact, the, one of the books that I talk about in here called The Monk, uh, which comes out in 1796, written by... It's interesting how many of these books are written by young people. The guy who wrote The Monk was 19. Uh, Mary Shelley was about 18 or 19 when she wrote Frankenstein. I mean, something about a young person's vision of these things. But The Monk is filled with inquisitors and, uh, you know, churches with catacombs and rotting corpses and things like that there. It's very, you know, very stimulating. I mean, that is the, the imagination of, of England, a Protestant country, about this, you know, this Catholic world. Because it's also set about 100 years before uh, the time that it's that it's written as well. The idea of the, that that fascination. Uh, well, you know, in a sense, it's the, uh, back to Diane's question. You know, it's about risk. You know, it's about. Um, I mean, a lot of popular culture does that. A lot of movies do that. They put us in a situation that we would never actually be in in our regular lives, uh, and we're in jeopardy. We're trying to escape from a concentration. Whatever we're trying to do, whatever the characters that we're identifying with are trying to do, and then by the end. It's over, you know. It's it's made into a a nice package. You know, uh, I have been observing uh, very interesting phenomena uh, all around. Whether people are behind the wheel, maybe at a library, maybe walking down the street, people seem to be in a zombie-like trance. <laughs> staring at their phones. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Well, well, that's you know it's just another another part of the uh, part of the whole look too. So one more question and then yes, Bob. Uh, I was wondering uh, some modern day twists in literary and film on on monsters. I wonder if you comment on. I want to two examples. Childhood's End, Arthur C. Clarke has the good alien is actually the devil, comes down. Looks like the devil. Looks like the devil. And the, uh, in Philip Pullman, the witches are good, not, not for bad. I just wondered, is that a modern day twist or were there other examples where... Well, there certainly were a lot of good witches in the old days, too. I mean, the good witch was, you know, what, what were witches? To a great extent, witches were a kind of pre-medical doctors, essentially. There were people who knew herbs and flowers and plants and things like that. They knew ways to, you know, there had been traditional ways of curing uh, disease and things. I mean, the curandera uh, now, you know, know, do do a similar thing. Uh, And so there were good witches. And then, uh, you know, the difference between a good witch and a bad witch was, was a bad witch somehow was using those powers to, um, you know, to do negative things. Yes, Oh, I'm going to, you know, make sure my uh, my neighbor's cow doesn't give milk or something like that. So, I, so my cow will, you know, be the only one in the neighborhood that's good there. But the difference, the change with the 17th century is that that with this, uh, as I was, you know, arguing in after the Reformation, is to make the witches into this um, conspiracy, this cult conspiracy, there with Satan at its head. Uh, that is in combat with the church. I mean, they weren't just isolated people in the countryside there. 
you know, they were actually. And, and I, might, I have to say that there's a certain amount of skepticism about this, even in the 17th century, that people can believe in witches and at the same time say, well, they're not guilty of these things. Uh, but the more overwhelming, the more overwhelming side of it uh, is to see them. I mean, silly things, you know, happen. Let's say, um, well, let's they, you know, witches meet in a coven and they meet in a in a place where they're going to get together and talk about their witchery. How do they get to that place? Well, maybe they ride broomsticks to get. I mean, it's, all these things get in, you know, kind of backformed, invented uh, in order to justify the you know this fear. Well, fear is a good place to end. Is a place we start. In the light of the last few days, there's one observation you make up was about birtherism and the changeling. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's. I think that's another way in which, um, way in which older ideas are are brought. You know, that have an emotional um, weight to them are brought there. It seems the whole birther thing to me. Uh, was saying, wasn't, you know, on the surface it was saying Obama was born in Kenya. Uh, but I think mythologically what it was saying was that he was a changeling. Uh, that in fact he was a demon child there. And changelings are uh, in fact born of uh, a part human and a part supernatural being there too. Now, I mean, more, more extreme versions of this uh, where there was uh, some, uh, some blogger uh, was saying that, in fact, you know, if you get close to either Obama or Hillary, they smell from sulfur. Yeah. Flies. Oh, and also, yes, and Obama attracts flies. Why? Now, what does that mean? Well, he's Beelzebub, the lord of the flies, there too. So, I mean, again, you know, depending, you know, when, you're, when you're hurling invective, let's say, um, at, at an opponent there, one of the most effective ways of doing it is to use these ancient images that already have that connection to people's fears. But thanks to you all for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.